I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. A weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Come correct with Maximum Firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello. You're listening to Maximum Firepower. It is a pleasure and an honor to have with me my good friend Steve Earle today. Steve, how are you, sir? I'm really good. It's really good to see you. It's great. It's really great to see you. I've, I've uh, We've had many adventures uh, across. Last time I saw uh, I guess it was Kansas City. I think it was actually last time I saw you in person. Yeah, yeah. Came, we, we yeah, had came a night off, and we were playing there, and we had some ribs. That we did. We had some ribs. <laughs> you, you, put on, you put on a great show there, and it was it's always awesome. And then, yeah. then, But then prior to that, I think we had one night where I did my, like, little one-man stand-up routine of, uh, off Broadway. Oh, that's Broadway. right. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we had it, and you, you gave me a nice uh, sort of Bob Dylan a walking tour of the of the village, which was yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. So what we're doing on this program is, is we're doing sort of top ten lists. So your five favorite and my five favorite acoustic troubadours. Right. So I'm going to let you begin and uh, hit well, me with one, one of your favorite because you know I could easily start. I backtracked to so many things because the way I started because of my age, uh, my first Bob stuff was electric. But mm. my drama teacher in high school gave me a copy of The Free Will and Bob Dylan, and I started backtracking. And my dad would not let me have an electric guitar. Oh. So at that point, I was listening to a lot. Steve Stills was an early acoustic hero. A lot of I could get into John Sebastian, those folks. But once I went back and figured out where it came from, and I knew who Woody Guthrie was by that time, and the Vietnam War was going on, and I was getting more political, it just sort of took me back to those first couple of Dylan records and yeah. Woody Guthrie. So, you know, how do we do this? Do you want to? Yeah. So you just said you take, let's, let's start with Woody, Woody Guthrie. Tell Woody me what, Guthrie, that's what, what I did. Why does, why does Woody Guthrie matter? Woody, Woody was, was pretty amazing because just the era he came out of, you know, he kind of, he grew up in Pampa, Texas for the most part. And uh, he just like, uh, it's the dust bowl. He went West when a lot of other people were going West from Oklahoma and Texas, a part of the world where he came from. And I think what people miss about him is that he was, he was a really talented guy. He was a visual artist. He wrote poetry, but he always played music and he was a professional musician. He had radio shows and stuff. Yeah. He just lived in an incredibly politically charged time. Mm. And nobody had made up a rule that you couldn't do that yet. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so he went on, uh, he started going out and entertaining at, at labor actions in California as they were trying to organize farm workers and, and, uh, and eventually ends up back in New York city. And I, I don't know, it's kind of, you know, I flatter myself a little bit. I'm kind of getting to be the hillbilly in New York City now for yeah. the last you know, like decade and a half. And and there always has been one. And Woody was it for a long time. And and mm -hmm. stuff I was showing you that night, you know, he he was his contemporaries were were Will Gear and Lead Belly, and there was mm -hmm. actors and painters, and and it was just um, a, a pretty amazing time, which led to the moment in the early '60s. When Bob Dylan was here, a bunch of people were writing songs, trying to write their own folk songs, but Bob was just better than everybody else. Yeah. And, and then he gets an electric guitar, and, you know, like I said, I, I had to backtrack to his. And that's the thing, as an acoustic guitar player, I didn't realize how how great a guitar player Bob was until I started listening to those earlier records. Sure, yeah, yeah, electric yeah. guitar, he did what he did, and he drove the van. Mm -hmm. But 
as an acoustic guitar player, he had cool finger style stuff, great flat picking yeah, stuff. Yeah. He took from Woody Guthrie and other people, but he was really good at it. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he just uh, that was that was sort of shocking to me. And I, I, a lot of the way I play comes from the Free Will and Bob Dylan, and that 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 one album is, has been probably influenced me in the way I play guitar. Early on, it was it was the main influence, and then. Then later on, it was, you know, other people that I met. And Towns was a great mm. finger picker. Towns and Zant and Guy Clark. Towns started making records first. He got uh, Mickey Newberry, another great Texas songwriter, uh, had been in Nashville with writing for A Cup Rose. He was from Houston. And he came across Towns, who had started playing coffee houses around Houston, saw him play at a, at a folk club called The Jester, signed him to a publishing deal. And he signed with Poppy Records. And which was a tiny label with the artists where they had Towns, they had Lightning Hopkins mm-hmm. at the, right at that moment. And they had Doc Watson, you know, mm-hmm. and um, he, uh, he made records. The records are, some of them are, there's great moments on all of them. I don't think he ever really caught the wave on, on making records. It just wasn't something he was had his hands on the process so much. I was lucky. I saw him. I met him when he was still, at the height of his powers as a performer, but, and saw him solo a lot. And so, mm-hmm. uh, it was just one of those things that, um, he had problems with substances and he also had mental health issues that, that mm-hmm. went back to him being a teenager. So he kind of never had a chance on, on a lot of levels. He and Guy Clark met playing the clubs in Houston. Guy got started late, actually writing songs. He knew every folk song in the world. And then he started writing and um, in his probably his mid to late 20s, first he moved to San Francisco and he built guitars. That's mm. the other thing. This whole acoustic guitar thing, Guy built the damn things and, and mm-hmm. he worked on everybody's guitars. And he moved to San Francisco first with a guy named Minor Wilson, started, um, they were making classical guitars, that business fell through. He went south to L.A., worked at the Dobro factory for a while as a day job. And then he got signed to a publishing deal with RCA's publishing company, Sunbury Dunbar. And they relocated him to Nashville because he didn't really want to live in L.A. (laughs) He was not an L.A. kind of guy. And uh, then Jerry Jeff Walker, that connection, played the same clubs in Houston that Townsend Guy did. Um, Jerry Jeff was like really my. I wanted to. My new record is a record of Jerry Jeff Walker songs, which oh, okay, is a set. I made a Towns record, yeah, record. This completes that set. Jerry Jeff was our connection in Texas to Greenwich Village because he was a later wave, like late 60s. He was in a, in a psychedelic band called Circus Maximus, and then he started making solo records. And he wrote Mr. Bojangles, one of the best songs ever written and one of the most covered songs ever written. And he started touring around the country, sometimes by thumb, sometimes by motorcycle. You know, he just traveled around and slept on people's couches, played the National Coffee House circuit. And eventually he he went from he's from Oneonta, New York, was in the village for a while, followed Fred Neal, who wrote Everybody's Talking and was kind of his mentor, down to Coconut Grove in Miami. And then Jimmy Buffett showed up, who he had met earlier when Buffett was writing for Billboard and, and a week early for a gig because he got his date screwed up. And Jerry Jeff put him in a 47 Packard that he had, and they drove to Key West. And that's how Jimmy Buffett got to Key West. He's from Alabama, man. And, then, <laughs> and, and Jerry Jeff got kicked out of Key West. Now, I don't know how you do that, but he did. Mm-hmm. And he went to Austin, Texas, and he lived there after wandering around the country like that long enough that he is buried in the Texas state cemetery. And mm. um, he's uh, he lived in Texas the rest of his life. 
And there's just this moment when I'm getting out of my own and playing places that there was something happening in Austin and, and Jerry Jeff was right at the center of it. So that's why I immediately went off into these guys that I knew because yeah, I'm yeah. lucky and I got in the middle of all that. So Yeah, was- yeah. Uh, well, I want to go in greater detail to some of those, but I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you at least one of my list. So the first one on my list is uh, a singer, songwriter, guitarist of which there are no known recordings. A fellow by the name of Joe Hill. You know, the poet laureate of the working class of the early 20th right. century who kind of, if he and the IWW the uh, industrial workers of the world sort of set the template for the social justice troubadour. And right. the idea was that the that the songs are a part of the movement. It's right. not like it's some sort of separate artistic bourgeois endeavor that may occasionally touch on these topics, that you are using them as organizing tools. And that no, always I, means, I, I, yeah. I think the closest thing to it, and, and I've always been wondered if it comes from that, or football songs. I mean, European football. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the songs are part of the experience of that's the, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, they're, and, they're, and encouraging the team to greater glory. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And so what they would do, and, and it, was, it was also a great unifying the, the idea that that songs would bring disparate people together. That the, no, you, had, you can you know, sing things that you can't say. You can that's get right. away with singing things that if you say them, people will knock you out. Ex- and exactly. You sing them and everything's different. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's like yeah. sort of kumbaya. But the idea that you had these, you know, you, there were Italian immigrants and Mexican immigrants and Irish immigrants and Chinese immigrants, whoever was working, you know, in the, uh, in California where he did some of his work, but they, or in the Pacific Northwest as well, but you, you, you take these, these spirituals and these hymns, these religious songs that everybody's been, you know, forced to learn since they were children. I mean, you, so they all know the melodies, but then you change the lyrics to become these, uh, you know, these radical screeds and using those as, and that was always like, and of course the famous Joe Hill quote is that, you know, a, a pamphlet is read once, but a song can be sung over and over, over again. And, over and, over. and it's yeah. also yeah. oral tradition, like not everybody could read. Yes, and exactly. You sing something, and somebody—it's way easier to learn a song that somebody sings than, than to repeat what they just said. Exactly. Like, nobody exactly. knows why, but it's true, and it's just the core power of music. And the second one on my list is Phil Oaks, and you know, and and Phil too was the—I think he always saw himself as the a competitor with Bob Dylan, and perhaps in his mind a lesser of, of the two. But there's something that he did, you know, when Dylan became more of an artiste, Phil Oaks was still trying to. It was playing like probably 17 shows a week at soup kitchens and for and for and for yeah, labor yeah. events, and really yeah. was a guy who you know, despite his own uh, drug alcohol problems and mental illness issues right. that, that surfaced pretty savagely later in life, he was a guy that really walked it like he talked it. And the idea yeah. that I am at service to humanity and the globe with my instrument is one that was very inspirational. What are your thoughts on Phil? I spent a lot of time showing people the Phil Oaks spots. I lived until just about a month ago, six weeks ago, at 182 Bleecker. So he lived at 178. And the way mm-hmm. I found that out is I was doing a thing for the ACLU. And, I, you know, I brought, Megan had put it together from Phil's yes. daughter. And I Phil's said, daughter, yeah. I just moved. No, I moved off Washington Place. I'm on Bleecker Street. Now she goes, where? And I said, 182. She goes, oh, my God. I got to send you something. And she emailed me a picture of she, of, of she when she's three and her father sitting on the roof of the building two doors down. And I've got it here <laughs> on my wall looking down at Sullivan Garden, which only those streets right there, that view. Bob had that view at one point when he was living on McDougal Street. And yeah. the only people that live on McDougal, Bleecker, you know, Sullivan or Houston in that block, there's a green space in there. And, and it's the two of them sitting in chairs on the roof and the green space in the background. Yeah. It was taken for a magazine or something. 
All my heroes are late with their payments. I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. So I'm going to cheat on my next one. I'm going to lump two giants in one. It's going to be Springsteen and Johnny Cash. Right. So for I, I came late to the game of the acoustic songwriters. I always enjoyed heavy music. First it was metal, then it was punk, then it was hip-hop. And it wasn't until my early 30s where I found uh, like the Springsteen Nebraska record. I was not a Bruce Springsteen fan growing up. To me, I the image I had in my mind was like the Dancing in the Dark video, which right. did not, I liked The Clash and I liked Gang of Four and I liked Black Sabbath and that felt like it was worlds apart from them. But then I saw, um, the, the HBO did a special on the uh, Human Rights Tour, the Amnesty International Human Rights Tour, where Bruce was headlining in some in Buenos Aires Stadium. Right. And, you know, and I watched that and I was sort of marveling at the fact that he was headlining over Sting and over Peter Gabriel, these artists, which I was more familiar with their work. And like by the end of the concert, I was crying. I was jumping up and down in my living room and I went back and I bought Nebraska. I didn't know which record to buy. So I bought Nebraska because it looks wow. kind of, that's kind a, of like that's a, that's a really cool entry level. For, that's right. That's the opposite of me coming into Bob Dylan and electric and backtracking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I, you know, I, I put that cassette on, and it was I couldn't believe that he wasn't from my hometown. These stories were like dark rumination, existential ruminations. I'm like, right. this is the dancing in the dark guy, which is also a dark existential rumination in itself. But it's wrapped yeah, up. It's, 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 it's wrapped Bruce up in. Getting, a, it's Bruce getting sick of being Bruce, right? It's yeah, exactly. Becoming the biggest actor in rock. But then from that record, then, you know, um, you know, 10 years later, the Ghost of Tom Chode record was one of the, was really the thing that literally propelled me into picking an acoustic guitar myself. And then right. Johnny Cash was one, I, you know, I, he was a, someone like, uh, you know, an icon. I heard his name. I wasn't, I self-identified as someone who wasn't into country music, so I didn't pay much attention. Uh, I was playing a Rage Against the Machine festival show, mid-90s, and I saw Johnny Cash was on the bill. So I went over to go see him in the afternoon in a the tent. The Rick records were going on at that time. Unbelievable. A lot of people I mean, learned about him from that. From that unbelievable. Time. I mean, just like his live performance and his authoritative command. Like here's a guy that's played 50,000 shows is what I thought to myself, right. you know, yeah. and his command of every moment of it and of the, of a Belgian audience or whatever it was. Right. And I went back and just dug into his catalog and realized just how, you know, what a, what a Titan of uh singer songwriters he was. He was, and that's the thing people think about him in terms of he, there's a lot of big Johnny cash records that he didn't write. But mm-hmm. especially early, he was such a great songwriter. Yeah and, yeah, and and I think that's why he was so open to covering some of the songs. We wouldn't know about Chris Christopherson if it wasn't for Johnny. That's Cash. right. He's and he just, wrote some great. He wrote some great ones in those Rick Rubin years too. Like in his, absolutely, you know, like some some great original I mean, ones. I got lucky. I got in on the tail end, and on one of those last sets that they released, he had, it was meant to be a demo because he was thinking about recording it, and they never got there. He recorded the Devil's Right Hand. He had yeah. done it with oh. Highwaymen. They uh-huh. it was because Waylon, you know, Waylon brought it in on a Highwayman session, and and uh, I, I, you know, I was lucky. I knew Cash. From um, I knew him casually for years, like when I first got to Nashville. But then Guitar Town came out. I'd been there 13 years. I was 31 when that record came out. You know, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, I was. I'd been around, been banging around Nashville for a while, and it's one of the the most favorite moments in my life. Is literally, I did this thing called the Pass It On show, where basically one person asks another person asks another person. It's kind of a guitar pull thing. It's a benefit for a charity that takes care of, of songwriters that have become indigent, you know, because of medical mm-hmm. problems and mm-hmm. um, the super fund it's called. And so the way it worked that year was John asked Waylon 
Wayne mm-hmm. asked me, mm. and I asked Mark Germino, who's a friend of mine, who's a great uh-huh. songwriter. And I'll, I'll never forget, we took the publicity picture for it, and John looks down and notices everybody was wearing black except him. He had some <laughs> kind of beige members only jacket, and it was Cash that brought it up. Uh, that night, he just all of a sudden walked up to me, and he said, I really like that song of yours, Little Rock and Roller. And I went, oh, wow, Johnny Cash just told me he liked one of my songs. This yeah. song I wrote, you know, it was about Justin when he was a baby. You know? yeah, so yeah. About 10 days later, I'm in a truck stop getting off the bus in the middle of the night, going in to eat something that wasn't good for me just because I was bored. And this truck driver recognized me. First time that ever happened. He said, are you Steve Earl? And I said, yeah. He said, man, I really, I got, I got your record right here. He said, he said, I really like that little rock and roller. And then this light went off in my head that what did Johnny Cash and the truck driver have in common? It's that we all miss our kids yeah. when we're on the road. And that's when it occurred to me what this job really is. It's empathy. People don't give a fuck what happened to you. They care about what happened to you that, that happens to them. To them. Yeah. 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 And, and I, that's a lesson straight from Johnny Cash. He's oh. a big deal. He, yeah. He's where I learned that it was okay to wear cowboy boots and have long hair. Cause I saw Bob Dylan and Chris Christopherson on his country music television. <laughs> that's right. It's TV very, show. Big deal for me. Yeah. All right. So the next one on my list is again, I'm just packing them in because I don't want to leave, leave people out uh, is Joan Baez and Feeney and Jill Sobule. I put the, some of that's my favorite, Favorite, right. That's favorite female troubadours there together. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and Feeney is someone, you know, she just passed recently, but she's someone that you know, she was like the female Utah Phillips in a way, like right. all like right. an entire lifetime of committing herself. And she's someone that, you know, it, it was not um, I don't think she chose to be a guitarist and songwriter. It was chosen for her, and then she had to figure a way to use her vocation as a way to change the right. world. So right. and did every day, every day of her life. Right. Um, Joan Baez, of course, they don't need to say much more, but just you know, she's the queen of it and it just is a blessing to have her on earth and then you and i have spent some time together with jill sobule who i just think is you know it's just sort of really it's it's so witty and so wonderful and takes can take the most complicated issues of politics or gender or whatever and wrap it up in a super hysterical song about a and we a, did a, have to a, say for our gal that the original i kissed a girl was jill sobule it totally was jill sobule when, when, <laughs> when my kids say that i'm like you don't even know <laughs> inferior inferior rendition of the, yes the, yeah yeah that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, like yeah. that other galway girl song exactly <laughs> exactly yeah that was her hit first Get come on hit, but who yeah. cares yeah but <laughs> but who cares but anyway so those are three three just like real impact ones, you know, and have had the chance to, I never got to play with Ann Feeney, but have a chance and I had a chance on multiple occasions to play with the other two, which is just awesome. And then lastly on my list is one of the most sort of formative moments in my life of appreciation for the acoustic troubadour. It was the tell us a truth tour. And so I'm going to say Steve Earle and Billy Bragg were hugely yeah. built. Now, Billy, I knew prior to that I discovered you in the lobby of a hotel when you first joined the tour on like right, the right. night no, tour in, in Detroit. I didn't know. I, I didn't know. Yeah, because the whole tour before that, we were walking off the bomb track. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's, Every awesome. Night. That's awesome. Well, I had been, you know, I've been friends with Billy for some time and he was, you know, hugely influential to me as someone who, you know, combined, you know, activism and music in a way that felt and he and I did substantial together going back into the eighties, you know, together for a long time. So that was a kind of a reunion for us. Yeah. Well, well it was just so, and then I, you know, as a, 
in the early 2000s was when I first started even writing songs. And, you know, I, Billy and I corresponded, and he asked me to come on this activist tour called the Tell Us the Truth Tour. Uh, and I brought Boots Riley along, too. And uh, it was Joe right. Sobiel, you, me, Janine Garofalo, Lester yeah. Chambers. And so on a nightly basis to just watch. Mike, you know, Mills. I had to, Mike, Mike Mills was with us. That's right. Mike Mills, of course, as well. He did a lot of that tour as well. And so that was really, and then, of course, then exploring your entire catalog. And I knew Billy's as well. But that is you know, sort of more contemporaries in this, uh, another generation of great singer-songwriters who, you know, trying to make a difference in the world. That was very, very impactful to me. Right, right. Well, it's, it's funny. I think we ought to mention when we're talking about just me being who I am and you being who you are. I mean, you're like the electric guitar player of, you know, your generation. That that moment, you you were the most innovative rock guitar player. And, you know, I grew up listening to i wanted to make my guitar sound like Jimi hendrix my dad would not let me have an electric guitar so i was listening <laughs> to uh, i kind of veered off later on when i started playing coffee houses and listened to less electric but i start it was beatles stones Jimi hendrix um cream you know as those records came out those aren't you know nostalgia to me those are right. those are that's my music and i was 14 years I, I had the first led zeppelin record because i was in a blues band when i was 13 years old and we were trying to play you know, Electric Mud came out. So we were trying to play that stuff. We backtracked to the Butterfield Records and thought maybe we could pull that off. But then two records came out. Truth, you know, the Jeff Beck group and sure. that first Led Zeppelin record. And we go, oh, this is, it's the blues. There's yeah, yeah. About yeah. That. But, but it's that thing of as Led Zeppelin went on, I was a 14-year-old boy by the time two came out. So that's very much core music to me. The acoustic guitar playing on Led Zeppelin records is incredible. Yes, the acoustic yes. guitar playing on the Who's records mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. incredible. You know, mm -hmm. and and that stuff. You know, a lot of people. It's still to this day. They for generations, kids walked in and they got a hold of an acoustic guitar music store. They tried to play Stairway to Heaven. Of course, <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason for that. There, there is a reason for it's that. It's about songs. I, I think the deal is people talk about Led Zeppelin as a proto metal band. That's not even getting. It they mm. had songs. Some yes. early on they weren't necessarily all theirs, but they had great mm. songs. Yeah. <laughs> and they learned how to do it. And Plant yeah. became a great fucking lyricist. And uh they had great songs. Nirvana, Kurt Cobain was a world-class fucking songwriter. And it, I think it's kind of interesting that there's a whole generation that came later of rock and roll guys, and acoustic guitar was important to them. They did, they were, you know, sitting, it, it wasn't all about sitting in a in a room and working up riffs sometimes mm -hmm. it was born of one guy sitting with an acoustic guitar chris cornell you know yes, yes. kurt cobain you yeah. know it's yep. like and it's weird those two guys coming out of the same scene they're both like really really incredibly great songwriters that's right you know, that's, so right. So that's right that's right that's the acoustic music within embedded in the electric music I think is important to talk about in this. Yeah, ab too. absolutely. It was, a, it was yeah. a huge, huge part of my, you know, uh, I wrote most of my, most of those rage riffs and audio slave riffs that I contributed to those records were written on acoustic guitar I, because, you know, in a Hollywood apartment, you couldn't like crank up a Marshall stack. So right. I would have like the acoustic guitar and then sort of imagine what it might sound like at the pink pop festival or whatever. Yeah. And, if, and if you can do that, those are the riffs that stick to the ones that you can do them on an acoustic guitar. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So then, that's then, right. Then you go, I mean, I, I got to work with you on, 
from, you know, one record a mile. Yeah. And it was really yeah. interesting to see that come together because it was mm-hmm. based on this acoustic guitar riff of Townsend's. Mm-hmm. And then, man, when you the got to hold the them in LA, it was, yeah. it was a trip. <laughs> and we yeah. got to do it one time at the Troubadour. We did. We I, did. I remember I had to turn my amp to like face the back wall. Face the back wall. Like I do that every cool. night anyway, just to keep from killing people. But yeah, so yeah, I yeah, learned yeah. to do that a lot. That's mainly to keep from killing my house mixer because right. it's usually right behind. <laughs> I was playing through eight tens for a long time. I finally went down to four and uh, yeah. I'm still 50 watts and four tens, you know, sure. yeah. still what I do. That's so. how you do it. But yeah. it's, it's one of those things that I, but acoustic guitar and sitting on the edge of a bed with an acoustic guitar. And that's a thing. I was really proud of you when you decided to do it. Cause man, if you can do that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I take comfort in knowing that if all hell, Broke loose. I could go down in the in the subway and bus. Can I that's promise right. you I come out with some money? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing too, is like the freedom of being the acoustic troubadour. Yeah, because I've been Absolutely. in bands my been in bands my whole life. But the idea of like there's no band meeting. You know what I mean? There's no band exactly. meeting. And exactly. when some when some anarchists get arrested in Berkeley and they need bail money, you can just go there and you can play a show. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Like it's, it's that, Absolutely. Like kind of I used this- to have a guitar that was that I purpose specifically for these death anti-death penalty demonstrations that I did because evidently every once you and I have been tear gassed together. Yes, we have been tear gassed. Every every once in a while, you know, like pushing and shoving an ordinance becomes involved and you and you don't want to fuck a really good guitar up. So so I had activism (laughs) dedicated guitar. I I think the name of my next record might be pushing and shoving an ordinance. That might be (laughs) Yeah, 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 no doubt about it. There you go. Uh, well, Steve, thanks so much. It's been a, it's one, it's just great to see you and to, and to, and to catch up and to, and to chat. And I, and I hope our paths cross soon and take care, man. Okay, man. Lots, lots of love. Okay. Bye. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the Sirius XM app. Search Maximum Firepower. Oh.